Worship team for leading us in songs of praise. Appreciate the uh, continuing our worship ministry and many of the saints who serve in different capacity. Uh, also, just to this morning, particularly if you're here and you have, uh, you kind of just notice uh, that I, I look better up here. Uh, so, want to <laughs> give thanks to the facilities team for making me look better. Uh, all this, all this back here is like wow. It's like man, just one week it just changed. They threw up some wood, and, you know, give some rich wood paneling, get some blue paint. Uh, you know, threw up the sign, the the nice new screen. It's like wow. Oh, this is almost like, am I in the right church, right? You kind of like, well, it's really neat. Just thank God for our facilities team, for the, some of our worship guys who really just gave me, uh, did a labor of love. And many, many of the, you were here painting, you know, cleaning, and then uh, putting up stuff. And I'm sure, you know, this is kind of neat. And this is just this is the beginning. So I uh, look forward to just seeing how the Lord's going to use uh, the, just the ideas that have been put forth and bring this uh, building to uh, reflect the glory of God. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, uh, as we'll be looking at a, uh, just the, the church in Antioch uh, today. Again, I just want to welcome all our guests and visitors, those of you that, uh, that stood up and those of you that maybe didn't get a chance to stand up, but we're glad to have you here anyways. Uh, so glad to kind of look around and just uh, kind of walk around the hallways. There's so many people, but I appreciate when I get to be stopped in by one of you and just like, hey, yeah, remember, you know, I'm back again. I'm like, oh, nice to see you. So it's great to see, uh, see some of you returning visitors. Uh, and uh, it's a joy to worship the Lord together with you. If you are particularly new to the church, uh, this series that we're in is, will be very helpful for you because uh, we've been looking at the mission, vision, and values of ESSA Bible and pray that uh, uh, last week's message this week and next week's message will give you a sense of what ESSA Bible is about, what we hope to pursue as a church together. And so uh, before we look to the Word, let's pray one more time. Father, we acknowledge that this is your church. Lord, we desire to, uh, to, to follow you in building up your church. Lord, may you guide and direct us through your word now. May your spirit fill us and so that you know, to lead us into the understanding of these truths. Help us to, to apply your word to our lives, not only individually, but as a church as a whole. Help us to be the kind of church that you want us to be, that you will for us. Lord, help us to be faithful, to fulfill the instructions that you give to us. And that we would be inspired and encouraged by the example of churches in the scriptures like the church in Antioch. So, Father, we ask that you be glorified through our time together and pray that, that everyone here, uh, whether new or old, will be drawn closer to you, would, get, would, uh, would, be, would be drawn in by you to be a part of what you're doing here at San Francisco Bible Church and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we continue our series on the mission, vision, and values of SF Bible, it's kind of just good to review. So last week we looked at the mission of SF Bible. What is our mission? What is our purpose as a church? Uh, every church, many churches have a mission statement. What is the scriptures? What does Jesus Christ teach us and tell us uh, that is what ought to be our purpose? And uh, I didn't ask of the first service, but I'm going to ask of the second service. Does anybody remember what the purpose of SF Bible is? To make disciples to the, of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Exactly. That's exactly what you said. So all you, I heard some of you guys mumble it too. Very good. I'm impressed. You guys were listening. That's right. The mission of S of Bible is to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. We take this out of Jesus' great commission. 
We believe this is scriptural. This is Jesus when he spoke to his disciples and to, for the disciples to make disciples who would then make disciples and passing on the teachings of Christ from generation to generation to generation. That was uh, the marching orders for the church. Every church, if they're going to have a mission statement, is going to, make, is going to be reflect in some way the Great Commission. And hopefully ours is pretty simple, but it's pretty straightforward to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. So this is our mission. This week we want to talk about our vision. Our vision. Uh, what is a, a vision? Well, first of all, when we talk about vision, we're not talking about, you know, some prophetic revelation that I've received from God directly that I'm now going to tell you so that Therefore, you must, we must obey as a church because I received it as direct, authoritative revelation from God, uh, like, for instance, the visions of, that we find in the Scripture. It's not that kind of vision. Vision we use in a term, it's probably, if you are, well, if you're from in the business world, you understand what vision is. Almost every company, especially if you're a major company, has a mission statement, has a vision uh, statement of what you, you vision a church, uh, your business to be. And that's really this... I, I honestly, I, if I could be honest with you a little bit as a pastor, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not big on, you know, kind of like mission vision statements, okay? I, I know that companies all around the world use it. Churches, a lot of churches have it. And people that are kind of like think that way, uh, they really can get into it and get behind it. I guess I'm always just, a, you know, a, um, yeah, resistant to that kind of stuff. But... <clears throat> But I understand why we have them. I understand. Because, you know, you can have the best, most well-stated mission statement and vision statement as a church. But if we don't fulfill it, if we don't do anything about it, if we're not just simply, uh, it's not going to help us. Really, even if, but if a church that doesn't have a mission statement, doesn't have a vision statement, but simply is faithful to follow whatever the scriptures teach us, to make disciples, to, to just uh, preach and teach the Lord Jesus Christ, God, by his grace, despite the fact that we don't have a clear sense of, you know, maybe what we're about or, or what we envision, God's going to build that church for his glory because God does that. God is sovereignly over the building of this church, whether we have a clear mission statement, vision statement at all. But organizationally in our world and particularly in, a, in first world countries, it helps. We all kind of think, we tend to think like that. If we're in the business world, we come from the business world, there are mission statements, vision statements. And a lot of times, I've had so many people ask me, for the longest time, people ask me, what's our vision? What's our mission? I'm like, well, I go, oh, it's the Bible, you know. But I know that I, was, I would kind of feel sad because that person would often walk away a little bit disappointed. You're like, oh, you know, we don't got no cool mission statement. We don't got no cool picture, logo, you know. So someone do some logo and make it look nice and, you know, picture our mission, vision statement for us. But... I understand how it helps us because we think like that in our world. And so that's why we want to have a develop a more of a vision statement for us, a Bible, to help us to see what, what we envision. Well, first of all, I've been talking about vision, but what, what is a vision? What is a vision? It's not a prophetic revelation. Then what is it? Well, here's a def- one definition. Dr. Dr. Aubrey Malfurs. Uh, Malfurs is a senior professor of leadership and pastoral ministry at DTS. He wrote a book called Advanced Strategic Planning. And in this book, he defines a vision as a clear, challenging picture of the future of the ministry as you believe that it can and must be. It's a real good definition. And kind of in his, in his book, uh, he, uh, he kind of just breaks each of these down. And it's a very helpful uh, to, for churches that are looking to develop vision. But I, on just a common kind of a, uh, I'm a common kind of guy for common kind of people, a simple definition might be just this. Vision 
is what we envision the church will be like five years down the road. What do we see this church becoming five years down the road? What do we hope that it will become? What do we believe that in light of who we are, in light of where we're at, in light of the people that are here, the times that we live, the location, what do we believe that God will, how will you, will, through the, the fulfilling of our purpose, our mission, what will that look like in this church? How will we accomplish it, if you will? So I like this definition. So let me give you, then, uh, in light of uh, a little bit of a, just kind of the vision statement, but actually before I do that, kind of a little bit of history. In September of 2015, our elders began to discuss uh, what we'd like to see um, happen, take place in our own lives. As we look at the scriptures, look at what God calls us to do, but also now in our own lives, but in the life of the church. What do we envision God doing in the life of the church in five years? We called it really, we we're just talking about five-year plan at that point. Um, and so we came up with a statement, pretty much this, what we have today. But as you know, many of you know that have been with us, due to our changes in leadership in the last, uh, last year, we've changed location as well. We wanted to reevaluate uh, our vision. Is it is still what we would hope that SF Bible would become uh, in the next five years? And so we did that in the last, uh, our last uh, September meeting in 2016. Now, and so here's our vision statement. It's a work in progress. It will change. Mission statements don't change. They reflect the scriptures. They reflect the priorities of, that Christ teaches us uh, the, about the church. But a vision statement is, can change depending upon people, time, circumstances, resources of a congregation. Here's our, the vision of S. Bible. It's pretty stri- simple, I think. The vision of S. Bible is to become a training center, uh, a church that is a training center that equips disciples to serve the Lord in the local church and in the community for the purpose of developing and sending out future leaders, missionaries, and church planters. Uh, this is our vision statement. Whether, and that's kind of what we hope SFI will become. Sometimes, it's, uh, as I look at it, it's a, you, know, you read it, it's a, it's a little mouthful. Vision statements often are a little bit of a mouthful. But... To make it a little bit easier for us this morning, I'd like to take a look at a church that I believe best exemplifies this vision. So instead of just kind of memorizing, you know, the vision statement, I'm not asking you guys to do that. It's it's not inspired scripture, so you don't need to do that. But I would like to simply present to us the church of Antioch, a church that reflects the vision that we we hope to have for Esabah, that we hope to see Esabah will become in the next five years. As we look at the development and history of, this, of the church of Antioch uh, in the book of Acts, may our study help us to, in a sense, catch the vision or envision the kind of church that God may make SF Bible into. Now, Acts records for us this early church, uh, the growth of this early church. Uh, first of all, just a bit of geography. I love our new screen. The, hopefully the colors are a little more visible, uh, though it's, this little, it's a you know, kind of tiny map. But uh, let's see if we can get this working. All right, let's look at it. Here is uh, Judea and Jerusalem right there, the tiny Jerusalem. This is actually a map of Paul's first and second missionary journeys. And many of you may be aware of where Antioch is. Antioch's right here, Okay. It's, also, it's part of a region that they called Syria, and it was often called Syrian Antioch, Syrian Antioch. Though uh, I think I looked it up 
in you know the map or common maps today. And I thought that it was might have been still in modern day Syria, but it's it's officially in modern day Turkey, modern day Turkey today. So it belongs to Turkey. But it's in the in most of the books we'll call it Syrian Antioch because there's another Antioch that we find in the Bible called uh, Pisidian Antioch that's uh, in in Asia Minor, in further in Asia Minor. But and this church came about. Uh, we see its rise in Acts chapter 11 to 15. Acts, record, Acts as a book records for us the growth of the early church through the work of the Holy Spirit. The key verse in Acts is Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where the promise of the Holy Spirit would, would bring about the, the, the transformation of the disciples to become his witnesses. Witnesses not only in Jerusalem, but then they would, that witness would spread to Judea and Samaria, and then it would spread to the ends, the remotest parts of the earth. On the day of Pentecost, we read in Acts chapter 2 how the church began. It began in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came upon those disciples that were gathered there. And from there, the gospel spread. It spread to uh, Judea, Judea. It spread to Samaria. And then in Acts chapter 10, the gospel begins to spread to Gentiles through Peter's vision and his ministry to Cornelius. In Acts chapter 11, we begin to see for the very first time a church that includes a significant number of Gentiles. Now, it's not that, up to this point, it's not that the church didn't have any Gentiles. They did have Gentiles, but they were primarily Gentiles who were first and foremost Jewish converts. They had converted to Judaism. Uh, they had converted to Judaism, they were, so they would have been uh, uh, practicing Jews. But then because of their connection with the synagogue, they heard the gospel and became believers. And there were some of those. Uh, and uh, you see one of them mentioned actually in Acts chapter 6. Now, with the church in Antioch, though, what makes it so significant is that it is the very first church to include a significant number of Gentiles who don't convert to Judaism and then to Christ, but convert from their Gentile religions, their idols, to Christ directly and become a part of the church. And there's all sorts of uh, just kind of significance to that, uh, though today for many of us who are Gentiles, we just sort of, mm, yeah, Jew, Gentiles are part of the church. Yeah, that's just kind of... We accept that. That's very normal for us. But for the day that in the early church, it was the most radical thing they'd ever heard. Almost many had difficulty accepting that truth. So in this church of Antioch that we look at today, we're, gonna look, we're kind of going to do a, a survey of the church of Antioch, the history of the church of Antioch. We're going to look at three moments in the life of the Antioch church that help us to envision what Essa Bible can be. That the model, the example of the Antioch church is a model, example for us. Even last week we looked at the Thessalonian church. Well, this week we're going to look at the Antioch church. And so let's take a look then at these three moments. The first moment in the Antioch church is recorded for us in Acts 11, 19 to 30. And it's the beginning of the Antioch church. The beginning of the Antioch church. <coughs> we record, see here how the church began. And the Antioch church in short, grew through the preaching and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like every church begins, right? Every church must begin with the preaching and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see as we look at this preaching and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church in in Antioch, we're going to see several repeated themes concerning the Antioch church. Repeated themes that we see here in Acts chapter 11, we're going to see in Acts chapter 13 and 14, and we're going to see in Acts chapter 15 as well. So we'll look at then, and we're going to spend a little more time at the very beginning on these three themes. Number one is, this: as the church grew, the Antioch church grew, we see that the Antioch church began 
through the advance of the gospel. The advance of the gospel. Uh, many times we, we don't, I don't think we, we tend to think about the advance of the gospel in a kind of a, uh, in a macro level. Uh, we think most of us think about the advance of the gospel. We think of it just kind of ourselves personally, that I need to personally share the gospel with someone else, with my neighbor, with my coworkers, with my classmates. But there's a sense where there's, a, there's an advance of the gospel on a macro level from one group to another group, from one culture to another culture, from one city to another city. Because that's generally how eventually the gospel is going to reach the remotest parts of the earth. Eventually, it has to transcend borders. The gospel advances in different ways. We see the gospel advancing here in the church of Antioch. Look at verse 19 21 with me. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. We see that in the early church, the church was primarily in Jerusalem, and it swelled to the thousands, right? There was, uh, I think, the three to 5,000 people in the church of Jerusalem at that time. It was so large that they had a huge ministry just to, just to feed the widows of a certain part of the, of the church. But God brought about a persecution, God, a persecution in connection with Stephen. Remember, Stephen was, was martyred. He was stoned to death. And because of that, it was at the hands of Saul, if you recall, that, and, that a great persecution arose in the church, particularly in the Jerusalem church. And so people started leaving. And just whenever persecution happened, people leave, people flee. And they made their way to other places, to Phoenicia uh, by the coast, to, to Cyprus, the island in Cyprus in the Mediterranean, and to Antioch here in Syria. But while these, remember, these are Jewish believers from Jerusalem, right? So they're Jewish believers. And they, when they traveled along, they, they spoke the word, they shared the gospel to no one except to Jews alone. Now you think, oh, is that racism? Is that what they're doing? Well, you know, I don't know if I, honestly, I'm not sure if I would be that hard on them. Is that... It's just that's probably what they knew. They were Jewish background, and for Jewish people, a big part of the culture was the, that they would have nothing to do with those who were unclean, and Gentiles were unclean. Well, not even Gentiles, but Samaritans were unclean. They didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans. Samaritans were often considered half Jewish. They were kind of intermarried inter, uh, with, uh, with, with many uh, this, between Jews and Gentiles. And so these, uh, these Jewish believers who left Jerusalem... I can understand why when they got to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, they, they, they would have went to the synagogue. And they were used to having Jewish neighbors and Jewish friends. And, and so they went to the synagogue. They, they shared about Christ with their Jewish neighbors, their Jewish, their fellow Jewish worshipers. But, verse 20 tells us, there were some men who didn't come from Jerusalem, men of Cyprus, men of Cyrene, who came to Antioch. So these were places of Gentile places. Uh, these were people who, uh, men who grew up, though maybe they were probably Jewish background believers, but they grew up in Cyprus. They grew up in Cyrene. Think of Saul who grew up in Tarsus. And when they came to Antioch, they didn't have any problems uh, talking with the Gentile neighbors because that's all they were used to. They grew up in talking to the Gentile neighbors. And so they started to speak to the Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus. Well, kind of, it's kind of encouraging as we see here 
was that God uses our background. It's kind of a little missiology for us, you know. When we talk about missions, you know, sometimes you're like, God will use our backgrounds. You know, sometimes we, when I went to the ministry, I thought about, well, it's gotta, how's God going to use me for who, in light of who I am, my background, and reach a certain people? And I think about it. Man, God, you know, obviously me being uh, an Asian-American, Chinese-American, ABC, I kind of end up ministering in a church in, where there are a lot of people of uh, basically Americans of Asian descent. That kind of reflects who I am. Uh, I'm thankful that I studied it. God used computer, I studied computer science, and though I cannot program a lick, I can kind of fake it when you tell me that, oh, I work for a, you know, a tech company, and I do this, and I do that. Like, oh, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Fortran, COBOL, basic. Yeah, yeah. I know that stuff. And we can have a connection because of my background. And you have a background, too. You have a cultural background, uh, a, 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 um, a sociological background. And God will use that in some way, somehow, to advance the gospel, as he does here for these, uh, the church in Antioch. But this is radical. For the Jews, who, who Jewish background believers, to all of a sudden have to see the, the, so many uh, Gentiles coming to Christ was a radical thing. We see, by the way, verse 21, talks about a large number of these, these Greeks believed and turned to the Lord. They responded in faith and repentance to the gospel. We see that the gospel advanced to Gentiles. You know, this, I've tried to think about it in the first service it came to me, how radical this is. It's like if we all of a sudden heard, all of a sudden, that in, the, in our Castro district, where we have many uh, homosexual citizens live in, we heard that all of a sudden there was a church that started there, and they're like, a great number of people were coming to Christ. That's kind of how it would be like to us, I think. It would be something that would be so shocking to us. Like, wow, really? Amazing. That's how it was for the Jews to hear that about Gentiles, Greeks, coming to Christ. As far as the Jewish background person, to have a Greek, a our God is our Messiah. Remember many Jews, they couldn't accept the fact, they thought the Messiah was just for them. It was hard for them to accept that the Messiah would come for the world. They even condemned. Uh, and, and we'll see that there's a condemnation in that as we, in the chapters ahead. So it's a radical thing. So we see then that the Antioch church began through the advance of the gospel. It, it crossed a border here. It crossed a barrier. You know, here we are at San Francisco Bible Church, and I would love to see us advance the gospel, not only individually, you know, but I'd love to see that us, that God would, that God would do it, that would use us to advance the gospel across barriers. We have much room to grow. That's the Bible. Uh, I know that we're comfortable we, we're, to talk to people maybe that are in our same kind of classes or, or neighborhoods, and, but we need to be, be stretched. I myself need to be stretched. Secondly, we see a second theme that's re- mentioned here, not only the advance of the gospel, but the church grew through the teaching of gifted men. The teaching of gifted men. God always uses in the preaching and teaching of the gospel gifted men, gifted leaders. And we see two particular individuals are used here in verse 22 to 26. First of all is Barnabas. Look at verse 22 to 24 with me of Acts 11. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he arrived and witnessed to the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. 
the Jerusalem church got wind that a large number of Gentiles were returning to the Lord. And this is, and just as you and I would be shocked if, if we heard that, you know, for instance, in the castle, many people would come to the Lord. We'd, we'd kind of wonder about it. And so we'd be holy. We'd be concerned enough that we would be, we want to help them out in their growth and send someone to go encourage them. And so they sent Barnabas. The Jerusalem church sent Barnabas. Now, there was no, it wasn't just kind of haphazardly, well, Barnabas, okay, we drew straws and you're the guy. But he was sent because he was of Cyprian birth. Again, back to our backgrounds, the significance of our background. Uh, Acts 4.36 talks about Cyprian birth. He shared the same background as those men of Cyprus who came to Antioch and started to preach the gospel to fellow, uh, to fellow Greeks. And so it was fitting that Barnabas would go because he would understand their background. He would go and see what was taking place there. And when Barnabas arrived and he witnessed the salvation of the Gentiles, he rejoiced. And he began to encourage, uh, just like his name, he encouraged the young believers in their newfound faith. God used them to encourage and build up that young early church. And we, the scriptures tell us that he was a godly man. He was a good man. He was a, a gifted man. He was full of the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are always going to be seeking the good of the church, as Barnabas does. And as a result of his ministry, not only do we see many number come to the Lord, now as a result of Barnabas' teaching, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord as well. So he encouraged them, he built them up so that they became even more effective in reaching others with the gospel in Antioch. You can imagine this church, what exciting to, to be to full of, you know, just imagine, you, you meet a new believer recently? They're one of the most exciting people to be around because they got all sorts of questions. They're like, excited, you know, I want to go grab somebody tell Jesus. This, this, it's like they found treasure, and they, they did, and they want to tell others about that treasure. Can you imagine a whole church full of new believers? Whoa. That's a lot of excitement for me, but it's pretty exciting. That'd be, and so, obviously, Barnabas and the teachers that were there, it was just, there, there was a lot of questions. There had been a lot of discipleship necessary. So Barnabas went and got help. He didn't, you know, notice he didn't create a minister description look, and, you know, look, put it on a job bulletin, look, for, look at a few resumes and interviewed some men like we do today. That's what we do. Nothing that's necessarily wrong with that. But look at what he did. He knew exactly what the church needed. In verse 25, he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with, church, with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Here's the second individual that God used, this gifted teacher, to build uh, the, the church. Now, for many people, especially if they knew about Saul, he, wouldn't have been, he would not have been the first guy that they would have wanted. You know, can't you go get Peter or James? You know, even Bartholomew will do. You know, any apostle, low-level apostle. Not that persecutor of the church. We don't want him because he actually, we don't know if he's real or legit or not. Right? I mean, that's, that's probably what these people were thinking. In fact, even after, when, when Paul showed up in Jerusalem and started trying to encourage people, people were scared of him still. That's the guy who's persecuted the church. Eventually, Barnabas came alongside. You remember, Barnabas came alongside him and encouraged him and introduced him to the church in Jerusalem. And eventually, Paul or Saul went back to, to Tarsus and was there at that moment. But Saul... Saul was the exact guy that the church in Antioch needed. He was, a gen, he was a Greek background Jewish believer. 
he would have known, been able to cross both cultures. He knew his Judaism. He was a, he was a, very, he was a Jew of Jews, kind of, but he was also one who had been raised up in Greek culture. So he knew, and he was very, his background, once again, fit the ministry that God was going to call him to do. And he joined the Lombardimus in the church, and they taught considerable numbers over a period of a whole year. And the church grew as a result of that, these gifted men. It's a little aside there at the end of verse 26. And it's kind of neat because we see this phrase. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. What an encouragement. That's, that's where we get the term Christians. You and I are called Christians because of the church in Antioch, essentially. That's where we get our name. Even today, there, there's still, still some confusion in the church. And I don't hear it as much. But there's still those who confuse the term disciples and term Christians. Some people are, who have been taught in, at, at some point in their lives that you become a Christian first. And then later on... When you're ready to, when you're, can be more, you're ready to be more committed, you can become a disciple. Like, it's, it takes more. It's a greater commitment. It's a second work of grace. Sometimes we hear it like that. But this passage, this verse, takes it really clear. The disciples were first called Christians. Christians are disciples. Now, basically, and that makes sense to you and me, and because uh, if you've been in this church, you're like, well, that's duh. But if you come out of a background like that, I know I came out of a background like that. Uh, it's an important distinction to make. That Christians are called to be disciples, to be learners, to be students, to be followers of Christ. A Christian who doesn't learn or follow Christ really ought to wonder if they're a Christian. A Christian disciple. So we, that's just something we pick out from here, uh, which we talked about in the past. But as a result of these gifted teachers in the church, the church began to grow in their obedience to Christ's teaching. There was no confusion who these, people, who these disciples were. They were Christians because they were taught to follow the way and the example of Christ. Their obedience to Christ's teaching manifested in a third theme. And that third theme we find in verses 27 to 30. And that is a kingdom-mindedness. A kingdom-mindedness. Uh, another way to say this is simply, they looked beyond the local church. The Antioch church had an, an awareness to look beyond themselves. There was something greater than just the Antioch church. Verse 27 30. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the reign of Claudius. And in, the, and in the proportion that any disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending in, char- in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And so they heard about this famine in the land. So they, and this not just in Jerusalem, mind you. This is a famine all over the world. And so they must have also prepared themselves, but they also immediately thought about the church in Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem, as you remember, just from the earlier chapters, was already burst in the seams, several thousand people. Even the widows, there was a great problem with the widows being neglected in the feeding. So food was in short supply. But this young church, probably about two years or less, had the kingdom-mindedness, though they themselves were just a young church, they looked beyond themselves to the need of 
Christ Church. They saw and thought about the Jerusalem church, and so they made a collection. They put up together money, and they sent it off to the church in Jerusalem to help with the relief of the brethren living there. They put it in the hands of Barnabas and Saul, who had been returned to the elders in Jerusalem. They saw a need, and they recognized it as something they could do for Christ's kingdom. There's a kingdom-mindedness, a church that is uh, that is that grows, that matures, is going to eventually have a, a mindset that looks beyond itself. I love our, our uh, just I just got a uh, in the, just in the uh, email past few days, just an update on on our from our mercy ministry. This good number of you got involved in the uh, project uh, uh, Angel Tree, and I just like I was so encouraged because like man, these are families, just people you know they're going off there, they're thinking about other you know other. Uh, just other people in our community, and they're reaching them with just Christmas gifts. They're thinking about the people who are in prison and their families that are out of the prison who don't have parents, don't have family, and they're going out, they're bringing gifts, they're, you know, they're just coming alongside with the, the love of Christ, thinking about people who are in need. And that's just not that, but other ministries in the church are going to minister to those who are, who are seniors, who are you know, ministering to them with the gospel. We have uh, just m- many people, our shoeboxes, thinking about children all around the world. It's great just example of how a church needs to constantly be thinking about others outside our, our local church. Definitely, we need to think about the local church too. But as we mature, we, it's natural for a church to have a greater kingdom-mindedness, to think about Christ's universal church, that we are part of something bigger. We do not exist only for us Bible. We exist to be part of this Christ's universal church. And essence, Bible's vision is that we would be like the Antioch church, a church that grows and advances the gospel, not only here in our city, through whatever barriers, the various barriers in our city, but advance the gospel in our region, in our country, and around the world. Advancing it through the preaching and teaching of the gospel through gifted leaders whom this church, we hope, will be used to, to train up, that we would train up leaders from among us that would then be sent out to fulfill God's purpose to minister to the needs of other churches and other areas that don't even have a witness. Now turn with me two chapters over to chapter 13. As we look at the second movement, the moment in the life of the Antioch church, that the Antioch church matures, the maturing the Antioch church. As the church matures, they, they will then, just like we mature, we will begin to even expand our, our care, our, our responsibility. As a, as a young boy, I only cared about myself and my toys. But as I grew older, and now as a, I got married, I, I started thinking about myself and my wife. As now God's given me children, I'm starting to think about my wife and my children. And I think, but hopefully, uh, and then as my response, as a pastor grows, I also think about myself and the church and all of us. As a, and that happens individually to us, but that also happens to a church. As a church grows stronger, this church is 50-plus years old, uh, we are at a place where we should be thinking a lot about the churches around the world, in our community, across the street, but also across the oceans. We, need to be, we should be at that place. We, 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 have, we have room to grow in there. We see then how the Antioch church was instrumental in sending out the first missions team to the Gentiles. And they sent their very best away for the work of the Lord. We see in Acts 13, verse 1 to 3, how it began. Now there were 
at Antioch in the church that were there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So we see then this church is growing. It has gifted prophets and teachers. There's a plurality of gifted leaders. These prophets and teachers, they were, their response was to, to give prophecy from God and to teach Christ's teaching. Uh, you, might, you could even equate these men to, uh, in, in our day to, to our, the elders of a church, the pastors and elders of a church. But among them were Barnabas and Saul. But we also see that there was a diversity in this leadership. There was Simeon who was called Niger. Uh, Niger means black, and so he might have had, had an African background. Lucius of Cyrene, a Gentile. Manan, who had a, a very, uh, he had a, from a, a very politically influential kind of background, who came, who had actually knew Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch, remember, was the Herod who had John beheaded, John the Baptist beheaded. So from this, this diverse group of leaders, and, and this kind of just encouraged why I love Antioch in this way, so they just have a great diversity that we hope to reflect one day in our community. But there's a diversity there. And, they, and these leaders were prophesying and teaching. They were ministering to the Lord. That word ministering simply means they were fulfilling their service, whatever service they were given responsibility to do. Uh, it could mean worshiping, but I, the, I think the, the general definition of ministering is a better, def, better translation. But they were ministering the word, as prophets and teachers do, and they were praying. The word and prayer always go hand in hand. That's uh, even see that priority in Acts 6. But they're preaching and the teaching and, and the word. And then the Holy Spirit spoke then, spoke to them, probably spoke through one of the prophets. That's why prophets did. They, they spoke direct revelation from God. And they said, set apart from me, God said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I called them. This was a, spe- this was a very special new work that God was doing. And so he specifically asked the church to set apart Barnabas and Saul. This is not like Acts 6. Acts 6, there were widows being neglected. And so what they do, the, the church decided, let's select seven men from among, among ourselves and let them make sure that the widow's needs are met. Here, God is the one choosing. And God doesn't just choose two, you know, two people from the, pew, from the congregation. He says, oh, just choose uh, Joe and, and Bill over there. Choose, he says, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul. Set apart for me Pastor Roger and Bill. Send them out. Two of their leaders, two of their best. And God wanted to send the two men to someplace else. Now you can imagine uh, if you're a human being, that when you lose your leaders or you, know, you might not see them again, you feel a little hurt by that. You might even be a little upset. It wasn't too long ago, and last year it was, when our own dear Pastor Alton answered God's call to go uh, to serve in another local church nearby. And I know for all of us, myself included, there was pain in that sorrow, that loss, right? Because we love him, and we love Carissa. We love them much. And, but they were being called by God to another parlace of God's kingdom. And though it might hurt us, though we would have loved to keep them with us, but yet that was what the Lord willed. And we can learn from the church in Antioch 
who may have felt the same way, but they, instead of, there are some churches who don't want to ever let their pastors go, don't want to let the cream of the crop go. No, don't send them. Send send the guys who are useless around here. Send them. No, God doesn't use those people. God wants to use the very best. God wants to send our best out to start those new works. And uh, God chose these two, and the church came behind them and supported them, They prayed for them. They laid their hands, which was symbolic of their support. And they sent them away. They sent them away to the work that God called. The Antioch church had a maturity that looked beyond themselves, you see. They they had a kingdom-mindedness. They had a plurality of gifted teachers. And God said, from this plurality of godly teachers, I'm going to call two to do the work that I want them to do. They saw that God's work was greater than their local church. Well, in the rest of chapter 13 and 14, we see this first missionary journey take place. It went into, traveled into modern-day Turkey, and they preached the gospel to the Jews first. But then what was unique about Paul's ministry is that eventually he turned from the Jews because they were, for the most part, rejecting the gospel. And he turned to the Gentiles, and he, had, he and Barnabas had great fruit among the Gentile believers. And they planted many churches among, in Asia, in Turkey, uh, where these Gentiles were coming to Christ. They preached the gospel, they made disciples, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, and then they appointed elders for them in every church. In Acts chapter 14, 26, 28 then, we see the end of this first missionary journey, the result of that first missionary journey. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with disciples. See, the result of the ministry is that the gospel was advanced. Once again, not known, instead of churches that were predominantly Jewish, that had been planted in Judea and Samaria, now we see churches that are planted, that are started, that are predominantly Gentiles. The gospel is being advanced because of the, the ministry, this maturing of the church in Antioch, their willingness to let go of their gifted teachers, to send them out, God had opened the door of faith to them, Gentiles. And the Antioch church's willingness to sacrifice of their resources, their leaders, led to this advance. Barnabas and Paul returned and gave a report, and that's kind of the basis, by the way, next week. We're actually going to hear from our Hong Kong short-term missions team. They're going to give us a report during our church family meeting of what the Lord did and accomplished through them. We look forward to hearing that report. But then Paul and Barnabas have to return to Antioch. They came back. God brought them back. And they just returned to doing what they did. They started to preach and teach and minister there and make disciples. May Essa Bible's vision is that we would be a church like Antioch, strong in its gifted teachers, in its teaching and preaching. We want to be not just known for biblical doctrine, We want to be known to have a plurality of godly teachers. Teachers who then God would then, as he wills, would call to be sent forth as missionaries, as church planters, as fellow pastors in other churches, lay leaders in other churches. We want to be a church where those gifted teachers would train up the church so that there is, we're we're not scrambling whenever one of our leaders leaves us and feeling overworked. No, we've got, we've got just a wealth and abundance of teachers that when one leaves us, we still have others who can step right in to fill the gap. 
We want to be an effective training center. And as we, as, we, as we train up people, then may we then fulfill Christ's mission and our vision for Essa Bible to make disciples of Jesus Christ, not only here to the glory of God, but wherever God leads, leads our, those whom we might send out from this church. Along the way, though, we can count on the fact that there will be obstacles to this. It's never easy. We, every church faces obstacles to, the, to fulfilling their mission and vision. And we happen to the church in Antioch as well. And we see this third and final moment in the life of the church in Antioch and the testing of the Antioch church. Acts 15, we see this in Acts 15. And we could almost take a whole series of sermons on, on, this, on this very chapter. But I just want to highlight uh, just two passages in, this, in chapter 15 to show how the church in Antioch was tested and, what, <coughs> and how they defended the gospel of grace, which was at the very heart of their preaching and teaching ministry. We see the attack of the gospel in Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And here was the essence of the, of the, the attack. Basically, there were those who said that unless you are circumcised, unless you become a Jewish proselyte, you cannot be saved. You cannot, you've got to obey the law of Moses. Paul and Barnabas are then they have this great dissension over this with these, these false teachers. And then the church agrees, let's, let's send them. Let's, because of this, this big debate, let's send them to the church in Jerusalem, where the church Jerusalem had apostles and elders. Back then, they didn't have the complete scriptures, so the apostles, and el- the apostles, particularly in Jerusalem, were the, kind of the final source of authority for them. And so they sent them there to seek their counsel. They, they traveled there, and when they got there, they told them what the problem was. They reported what God had done among the Gentiles, even. But then in, we find that the problem that the church in Antioch was facing was the same problem that also faced the church in Jerusalem. Notice verse 5 of chapter 15. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. See, there were those even in the church in Jerusalem who also held this very same truth or the same error that these people had to be circumcised as well, just like uh, the Jews were. They had to follow the law of Moses. At the heart of the conflict was the gospel of grace. We understand that the gospel of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's the message of the gospel. Because of what Christ has already accomplished, finished on the cross. But there are always those who would add to the gospel and say, no, you must have faith. You can have faith, but you also must do this. And here they were saying they needed to be circumcised. And to, in, this, this error to, that affected the gospel not only threatened the gospel, but it threatened the growth and the, and the expansion of the church. To corrupt the gospel is the death of any local church that would hold to that false gospel. The church in Antioch sought the counsel of the church, the apostles and elders of Jerusalem. And Peter and James gave a response. Peter basically just stood up and said, you know, um, God gave me a vision of exactly what would happen. And that's exactly what happened with Cornelius. He mentioned in verse 11 of Acts chapter 15, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And this is great. What a significant statement in verse 11 because Peter says, 
We are saved through the grace of the Lord. We, that is us Jewish background believers, are not saved because we're Jewish. We're not saved because we observe the law. We're not saved because we're circumcised. We're not saved because we observe our feasts on the holidays. We're not saved because we observe the, the different various uh, ceremonial laws. We're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, by grace, in the same way that these Gentiles were saved. James answered, uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was an elder of the church of Jerusalem, and in fact, the leader of the church of Jerusalem at this point, also stood up and said, and he quoted Amos from the prophet Amos. And he says, exactly, that's what the prophet Amos said, that Gentiles would be saved. So how can then we, uh, by, uh, and so how can we add and basically add on to this gospel to put a, a yoke upon uh, these, uh, uh, these Gentiles that we ourselves even cannot keep? The Jerusalem church uh, so really settled the matter and agreed that, no, we, we can't expect of these Gentiles to observe the law, to be circumcised. We're not going to add to the gospel because that's not the gospel. So they preserved the gospel. They, they sent a delegation back to the Antioch church with that answer. Uh, Judas, uh, Silas, Barnabas, Saul, and others were sent back. And they brought a letter to affirm what they believed. That letter was eventually read to the church. And we see the results of it in chapter, 30 and verse 30, in chapter 15, verse 30 and 35. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. So we see this, the result is that everyone's at the end, all, they, the trial is, is passed. They are encouraged because they receive a word from the, the church in Jerusalem that confirms the gospel of grace that they, had, that they had believed in. But as we look at just this, as we kind of just consider the, the conclusion of this, we see that the importance of churches looking out, in a sense, being mindful of one another, being connected to each other. You know, when the, when the famine, the port of the famine came, the Antioch church ministered and was a blessing to the Jerusalem church. But here we see how the Jerusalem church, through this, this testing, became a blessing to the Antioch church through their encouragement, not only of their answer, but then even sending uh, guys like Judas and Silas along as well, who added, encouraged, and strengthened the brethren uh, with lengthy sermons. So, you know, uh, we have this biblical. <coughs> But we need to remember that. I think especially as a, we're a non-denominational church. We're non-denominational. And we're to, we sometimes, you know, we, we call it, we're independent Bible churches. And sometimes we take that independent a little bit too far. So we're independent. We don't need, almost, almost like we don't need other churches. We need other churches. We need other churches. We don't necessarily need to have a formal relationship with other churches. But we need the other churches in San Francisco. We need them as much as they need us. Because wherever there is a church of Jesus Christ that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is a fellow church that is co-laboring with us in this field. And it should anything happen to, a persecution happen to Esa Bible or a sin that takes place in the church that just kind of devastates this church and people scatter, there will be other places, other churches in the city that can take on the, just the, the fallout from all that. 
We need those other churches and just as they need us. Because God uses our, for all these churches to preserve the gospel. We see also just here, just some of those repeated themes mentioned. Uh, this, so there's a, just the kingdom minus, the, the need for other, the recognition that we're part of something that's bigger, that our, our relationship with other churches are significant. It doesn't mean we need to partner with other churches in doing everything we do. But we, should be, uh, we should be aware of our relationship with other churches. Secondly, we see just the continuation of these gifted teachers. Not only God added more gifted teachers, added Silas to the mix. He decided it seemed good to him to remain there. And then he, along with Paul and Barnabas, they continued to teach the gospel. They, teach, they taught and preached. And they were with many others also, it seems. So it sounds like the number of teachers grew but as they continue, they simply continue preaching the word of the Lord. Again, a healthy church is going to be one that is strong and begins with a strong on the teaching and preaching of the word. But it's going to be, as it is strong because of this gift of teachers, it's going to advance the gospel. It's going to advance the gospel and it's going to, be a, a, and it's going to have a, a kingdom mindedness, an awareness that what we do here is beyond just what we do in, in our individual lives. But we also have a greater mission to... to Send forth our, those whom God calls far and afield. Well, this is the Antioch Church, and hopefully we just kind of get a summary of it. The Antioch Church, if I could summarize it, was a, simply a gospel-advancing training center. A church that was gospel-advancing, crossing all barriers, crossing different ethnic groups, different languages, different nations even. It became a training center where teachers were, they had a plurality of gifted teachers who trained up people constantly who would then send out future church leaders and missionaries. Some would stay, but some would go. I hope that Essa Bible would be like an Antioch church. That's our vision. That's what we hope to be. A training center that equips disciples to serve the Lord, not only here, but in our, in our community, but ultimately for the purpose but advancing the gospel to be witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth, to train up future leaders, future missionaries, and future church planters. That's our vision, and uh, pray for us that God would enable us to fulfill this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Antioch church. Thank you for their example. Thank you for what your spirit did in them as they grew and through the preaching and teaching of your word. Thank you for the gifted men and gifted leaders that you put there. Thank you, Lord, for how they advanced the gospel across barriers and, and cultures and nations. Thank you, Lord, for just their kingdom-mindedness. And Father, we pray that you would give us the same, a same, these same mindset, that we, as we as a Bible church known for the preaching and teaching the word, Lord, help us to, to mature, to grow up, that we would... Be that we would be intentional in raising up more and more leaders, equipped servants, equipped not only to serve in this body, to reach out to uh, to to make disciples here and in our community, but Lord, that we would cease that you would call some from among ourselves who'd answer your call to cross barriers with the gospel, so that your church would continue to be built around the world so that disciples would be made so that you would be glorified as you bring about 
the cooperation and the working together of all your people, all your churches that belong to you around the world. Lord, give us much wisdom as leaders in the days ahead and how we may bring this about. Help us to see what we may need to do to change. We may do better to bring this about. Lord, ultimately we ask of you, Father, to mold us into the kind of church you wish us to be, that we would make, continue to make disciples of Jesus Christ for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Uh, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next week.